welcome to a new episode of Startup Diaries. In today's episode, we have Tom Reynolds, who's the founder of EdTech Startup, Eden51. To give you a bit of background on Tom before we dive into the podcast, is he started his career actually as a, an English teacher here in Manchester, and he went on to become a very successful head of department and specialist leader of education. Soon into his teaching career, he wanted to ask the question, how many skills of reading, writing, speaking, and listening are students supposed to learn? And obviously, having studied hundreds of exam papers across the board in different schemes, Tom identified there's actually 51 universal skills at the core of English language education. Tom is now the founder and CEO of a award-winning edtech platform, Eden51. In this episode, Tom will talk us through the challenges that he's faced as a, as a solo founder. He'll then also talk us through the journey from his point of view of establishing the business as a B Corp from the outset. He then talks us through how he's actually selling the product essentially to an entire country. And finally, as a little bonus, he's got a hiring plan for his first few hires within the business, really evolving diversity inclusion that he gives us a bit of insight to. We hope you enjoy it. Welcome, Tom. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Do you want to start off by telling us a bit about yourself and uh, the story behind Eden 51? Yeah, of course. Thank you. Um, so Eden 51 is an innovative English language edtech platform, and we're on a global mission to disrupt and transform the English language teaching, learning and assessment market. Um, we promote 51 universal skills of English language reading, writing, speaking and listening, and we're able to make the teaching, learning and assessment process a lot easier in a, you know, in a hope to improve experience, outcomes and opportunities for everyone, everywhere. Perfect. I've got to ask then, I know you're a solo founder, How, how's that been? What sort of challenges have you, have you faced? Um, many. <laughs> so, whilst uh, many co-founders may disagree, um, co-founders from what, from what I've seen can at least split themselves into specialisms um, or maybe areas that they feel more confident to explore and develop. They also have an invested sounding board in each other. Um, and potentially it's quite likely that a team of co-founders is able to progress quicker as a, as a simple numbers game. So as a solo founder from non-tech and non-startup background, it has been a real learning curve to become jack of all trades across the board so the tech the marketing comms brand mm -hmm. design accounts finance sales equity investment funding and even networking um but i love the challenge i i think of it like maybe moving abroad to learn a new language that you don't speak uh, meeting new people and going to places that you've never been so it's tough to make your way in a in a new world after years of living in a different one but you just have to rely on your passion and knowledge that you have something that's, that's going to make a difference. Great. I think with um, one of the things when we were putting this together is that you mentioned to me that you want to be a purpose and actually values-driven business. Mm -hmm. And actually, we, we obviously met in person the other day at uh, the Tech Nation Rising Stars, and yet again, it was in your pitch talking about that and the passion came through. So I'd, I'd love to know what that means to you, really. Yeah, I mean, we, we want to offer something that's innovative, of course, something global, something equitable, inclusive and, and sustainable. We want to be all of these things because we want to support those that need it most. An individual's English language proficiency, whether in the UK or across the world, is a catalyst for their global opportunities. So on a global level too, a nation's prosperity in terms of wealth and growth is undeniably correlated to the English language proficiency of its population. So at a fundamental level, our mission is purpose-driven. 
Um, our pricing model for our annual SaaS subscriptions is also based on gross domestic product and purchasing power parity, which means that every country has you know, equitable opportunity to be able to access this as a provision. For, for example, uh, Thailand's GDP and PPP is approximately two and a half times less that of the UK. So after setting a, a price here, I you know, purchased in education for years as a school senior leader, it enables me to set a price here in the UK and then to price it according to, um, to other countries in relation. As, you know, as a B2B business as well, we want to offer something at, at state level, of course, based on that pricing model, but purpose-driven in as much as we want to make it accessible and inclusive. So we need to be able to offer this to individual schools, maybe to businesses that want to upskill employees. Mm -hmm. Um, maybe even into prison reform systems and unemployment centres. At a B2C level, we want individual learners to be able to access the provision, um, even developing a combined app platform between parents and kids. So at every level, we want to offer this, um, this provision. I suppose another element of being purpose-driven is we're exclusively for the non-supply of private and fee-paying schools. Um, because in an attempt to close the gaps that have undoubtedly been exacerbated by COVID to a degree of which nobody can yet comprehend, providing those that need it most with the highest quality provision is the only way of levelling the playing field. Mm. So this is, a, this is a state and public provision, of course. B2C for parents and you know, individual learners, but we need to put some weight on the other side of the seesaw, and I think that's, uh, it's those kind of principles and setting out that stall that's helped us to attract the attention of UNESCO level. Awesome, awesome. And one of the other things as well, I think you're, you're on track or you're keen to become B Corp from a very early stage. I guess, how, how do you aim to, to become B Corp and, and, and how do you aim to drive this? So we're really lucky in this regard because we are advised by um, a gentleman called David Connor from the 2030 Hub. The 2030 Hub, based in Liverpool, is the the first regional hub recognised by the United Nations. So it's my understanding that when, um, when the UN set up their sort of head queues in the, capital, in the capitals around the world, it was, it was David Connor who had said, well, you're never going to sort of drive you know, momentum by just having capital offices because businesses and gov sorry, governments have got greater priorities than looking after the world in which they live. So why not have regional hubs where every city can kind of do their best to achieve these, as it is now, the 17 um, Sustainable Development Goals of 2030. And the 2030 hub is on the floor beneath me in the Cotton Exchange in Liverpool. So I've been given all of the advice and all of the, the instruction, but we want to aim for B Corp from the outset because we believe it will be an industry standard or something similar maybe in 10 years' time. So why wait? Because I think... From my understanding, once you know, even outside of business, even say in education, of which I'm you know well versed, once practices, processes are adopted and enacted in any industry, it's difficult to change and adapt, and that's just human nature. So change means time and it means risk, which are two things that many business aren't, aren't likely to get excited about. But if we can build an equitable, uh, inclusive, transparent, and environmentally conscious and forward-thinking business from day one. And that's, that's why we've already started our B Corp application. And that is as simple as going online, typing in B Corp application, putting in your business name, company's house number, incorporation date, 
and then you know a handful of other things and you say right we've started the process mm-hmm. so at every stage going forward it's it's in rather than you having to look back and think how do we now fit this when our business is yeah. is working yeah no, that makes sense to build it in that image to start with um one of the things i'd love to really talk about as well is you're ultimately selling this product to countries education systems so um i really would love to know how on earth you go about selling to a country uh, <laughs> that's a big it's a big question yeah um, what does the process look like and i guess yeah i imagine there are plenty of challenges so if you talk us through a few of those yeah of course so um how do you go about it patience um strategy um a little bit of who dares wins i suppose and serendipity um, the first thing that's probably important to answer to that is is in why why abroad first. Um, the education market in this country is fragmented and has been for approximately about 15, 16 years now with the um, the rise of the academy structure. You know, you, you're kind of going from having a state sector of a national curriculum and 4,000 secondary schools to now having a national curriculum in terms of the guidance that schools are given in terms of them taking a resource provision from the state, that doesn't exist. So selling in this country, still B2B, would be one school at a time, two schools at a time, three schools at a time, depending on the size of that multi-academy trust. So it's a piecemeal process. And I was asked this in the Tech Nation um, panel question the other day, why states? The state is a whale, you know, so why not start there? And then it's like, you know, if you can sell to the whole of the jigsaw whilst it's complete, then do it. If you can't, then put the jigsaw together yourself. So that's the obvious reason. Um, I would say that in terms of how it came about, when I first resigned as a school senior leader a few years ago, I, I knew this about the English education system. So I, I purchased a stand, a shell stand, on the, the New Futures area at BET, Excel in London, mm. with an old HP laptop in between... Sony and Apple um, <laughs> on the stands in between them. Honestly, I had a pod like a, a lectern, say not a podium, a lectern with a my old laptop on an Excel spreadsheet with the sort of even fifty one prototype inside. But I went over there to try and demonstrate it to international users to try and prove market interest and product product market fit because a lot of people would think that teaching English in this country is very different to teaching English abroad, and they say, well, yeah, a conversational level. So in terms of teaching up to a point of proficiency in, in, in conversation, then absolutely. And that's what you know, companies like Memrise and Rosetta Stone and um, Duolingo, that's what they specialise in, building in confidence in um, context for communication handling. But I always use a, a piano analogy here and say that you know, there's 88 keys on a piano regardless of what country you're in and regardless of what piece of music you're trying to play. And English language really isn't any different. There are 14 punctuation symbols in this country and abroad, four sentence types, four sentence forms. Paragraphing is paragraphing, you know. So once you actually sit down, you write them all down, you've got that number. That number, like the 88 on the piano, translates anywhere. So once I was able to build that kind of, um, that product market fit and that build those international relationships, I then just knew it was a case of finding a CTO to turn my... Um, Excel spreadsheet into a into a web app MVP, gain new testimonials, um, attend Department for International Trade Export Academy training, which I'd advise if anybody's listening and looking to export abroad. Um, 
enlisting the help of people like Norma Foster who help you to, in inverted commas, internationalise your business, even looking for things like idiosyncrasies in language, words and phrases that you'd use in the UK but don't translate well abroad on your website, for example. You have to consider all of your media. Um, you have to get a Department for International Trade advisor. Um, go back to international exhibitions like I re-attended Bet Asia in 2022 met with the Department for International Trade leader from Thailand, started to show them some of the testimonials, the platform, they make introductions and, as I said, some serendipity and managed to, you know, we won our first EdTech Award last July from Greece and really off the back of that, we were then able to go back to Department for International Trade and say, when, you've, when you go to Bet Asia, can we come and exhibit with you mm. as part of the Department for International Trade? And we got our invite. It's one of the best moments of the business so far, a formal invite from the Department for International Trade, inviting us to attend Bet Asia, one of the biggest EdTech shows in the world, as part of a Northern Powerhouse EdTech mission. Mm. Um, and I said, right, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to talk to the Ministry of Education. That's what I'm going to do. And again, I mentioned the other night, the Ministry of Education for Thailand were too busy to speak to. Um, <laughs> But the Ministry of Education for Vietnam were not. Um, shout out to them if they're listening. <laughs> and uh, they, they, they sat down and let me show them the platform. And they said, if you can find a testbed, a proof of uh, concept project in Vietnam with a university and get the, the research project and the, the outcomes from it, we'll look at that and then we'll talk again at Bet Asia next year. Mm -hmm. Came straight home, did what I need to do, found a doctor of... Um, English teaching education at a university just outside Hanoi. We've established a project now in agreed terms. It awesome. starts on the 14th of February this year, it completes in July. We share the results with UNESCO and with um, um, the Ministry of Education and Training in, in Vietnam, the MOET. We go back in October and then we discuss a provision for approximately 8 million users on a five year minimum subscription, SAS uh, subscription. Amazing. <laughs> well, that's the answer. Yeah. Well, we've, we've certainly never had that advice as well before. I don't think anyone's talked to us about you know, selling to an entire entire country on that scale. So I'm excited. We'll probably check in once that's uh, hopefully gone through. Um, I spend a lot of time on this podcast waxing lyrical, probably more about Manchester. Though yeah. I go, um, but I know you always see HQ started in Liverpool. Um, mm -hmm. So I'd love to find out a little bit about how you found starting a tech business in in Liverpool, really. Okay, no problem. Um, Liverpool has been... A brilliant place for me to to start a tech company in fact when I first started with my Excel spreadsheet I didn't even know I was a tech company um, it was the it was talking to a, a certain individual called Johnny Clark who's the the startup grind um, chapter leader in Liverpool as well as being Eden 51's commercial and scale-up advisor and I said I'm an education business and he said you're a tech business and I said no it's definitely education he said you're a tech founder and a tech CEO, and you've got a startup, mm -hmm. and they, you know, they sort of started this journey of, even as an English language, an A level English language teacher, this whole journey of learning um, about a new world, and just really lucky to have met so many people that have made that transition as straightforward as possible. So I actually um, I work with uh, work in the same office as Supplywell. Um, okay. They were the rising stars, I think 2.0 um, national winners. Mm -hmm. So, you know, great to be advised and mentored 
by them. You know, I spend a lot of time with their their founders, and they've been really supportive, really helpful. Um, it was through them that I met my my CEO, who saw the CTO, sorry, who saw the, the platform Excel and said, "I can see the benefit of this. Um, I'll I'll do this with you." Um, just everybody, even down to so University of Liverpool, have got a brilliant intern scheme, where um, they'll supply masters level students to to SMEs, mm-hmm. um, completely funded through Santander, and I'm positive it doesn't exist in Manchester because I think some of those University of Liverpool students end up coming and working with startups over here. Really? Okay. Yeah, I had um, and have now. She you know works with me regularly. Um, a girl called Polina Ivashkova. Um, a University of Liverpool Masters of Business student who's just you know been instrumental. The Liverpool City Region Tech Network as well. Every everything about it. That said, I'm also part of the Exchange Incubator at um, Bonded Warehouse. Yeah. Um, and I was at uni in Manchester, and I still think of Manchester as being a little bit of a spiritual home. And actually, having had my uh, dyslexia diagnosis just those few days after completing my English degree, about 300 yards away from here. Mm-hmm. Again, not to overuse the word from the beginning, but it, it seems like quite serendipitous to be back here now and building a tech company in the place where, yeah. you know, I feel like it all started. Yeah, I've um, yeah, been in Liverpool um, 15 years, but I've been in the Northwest over half my life. So mm. I think about it as starting a tech business in the Northwest. That's, yeah, uh, yeah. that's the <laughs> political way of phrasing it. That's no, why I'd say I'll tell you that. I'll tell you that. Um, one of the things that, again, I'd love to talk about is when we were putting this podcast together was, obviously, you're currently a one, one-man band, mm-hmm. um, but you have future hiring plans, which potentially could actually have a unique way of sort of creating a hiring panel yeah. to help you with those first few key hires. Do you want to talk us through that idea that's, yeah. uh, that you were bouncing around? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it certainly doesn't feel well not all the time like being a you know being a one man band because of I'm just surrounded by so many advisors, mentors and people that just will always answer phone or answer emails within a minute that you know I'm very very lucky in that regard. Um and I mentioned about the you know the intern scheme then. But we are we are raising at the moment and um growing the team is a priority. I would be naive to think that I can do this much longer bootstrapped. I'm very proud of how, you know, when you're having a conversation like I was last Friday morning with two senior representatives for UNESCO based in Bangkok, but also responsible for the APAC region as a whole. Mm-hmm. And they're asking you to demonstrate something that you built in Excel with a friend over in West Kirby. <laughs> um, it doesn't even sound real. That, yeah, does it? it doesn't. It doesn't <laughs> just point out it's West Kirby, not Kirby. Um, I'm very proud of it, but there has to be a point where when you've bootstrapped to a certain level, you then can't be naive enough to think, well, I can do this on my own because it will be the detriment of the of the business. So I believe in building, having built enough momentum, and I use that word specifically because, you know, from some of the advice from David Levine about don't use the word um, about creating traction. Traction means pound signs, whereas momentum can be, you know, just more badges, more things to put on the table of things that you've done. Mm-hmm. So using the word momentum specifically, I think that, You've achieved enough momentum at this point. Say, right now, we can't bootstrap it. We can't just do this off people's time and people's energy and people's hard work. It's now got to be an investment. And so we're looking at raising the, um, building the team to four in the next few months. Um, We've been cautious about growth and cautious about speed. I've met 
a number of businesses who unfortunately are sounds bleak the business is no longer with us mm-hmm. um and when i've asked them there's a pattern there that they've, they've grown the team too quickly right and you know i've really been aware of that the fact that i've managed to survive throughout covid as a you know as a startup i'm, I'm proud of that mm-hmm. but there has to be a point of, of of growing it so um i've helped to employ tens of staff in a previous life um but as i hope that most people are and probably now more conscious of the potential of internal bias. So it led to an idea that at this point of hiring, about seeing if I could put a panel together of a diverse panel, maybe doing it as a bit of an experiment on um, on LinkedIn, to see if anybody would be interested in assisting me in putting a panel together at, at, for interview. Now, just as a social experiment, I don't want that to come across as if I'm doing it as a novelty act, like a renter person. <laughs> But I mean, to, to give a validity to an appointment that isn't just based on one person. So if I share the job description, I can have all of those contextual conversations first. But it'd just be, I just think it'd be great as you know, somebody building a team from the outset to have the benefit of a diverse panel to help you in that appointment. So it's something that in the next few months, if you see it on LinkedIn, it comes from the right place. It's just you know, an idea to you know, to make sure that everything is fair and open. That goes back to the idea of wanting to be B Corp from the outset. You can translate that as we want everything to be open and transparent from from the off. Um, and I think that's one of the, the ways of doing it. Yeah. Well, as soon as you share that out there, I'll boost it with my network and see, see how far we can Yeah, I think it'd be wonderful. Yeah. Uh, last two questions from us to so be always wrap up with. Um, love to understand what you see as that's been the biggest challenge in your career to date. Okay, so the, this, there's two quick things I think for the biggest challenges. The first one is the, the first one's definitely the bootstrapping. Yeah. The risk of of starting a you know of leaving a, a career as I had you know I've mm-hmm. been in, I've been in a very successful teaching and sort of leadership career in secondary education for 15 years. I was paid a very good salary. I was held in you know I think quite high esteem in terms of um, achievements and you know. References and testimonials have been managed to that I've managed to procure since, and leaving that and kind of saying to your your partner, then partner, now wife, um, this is what I'm going to try and do. That you know, it's a huge, huge risk. Um, and bootstrapping, you know, I work as a as a nationwide education advisor to try and you know bootstrap and fund this, but that side is very, very difficult. And you know, the idea of people saying, what about the friends and family around? That phrase makes me laugh. I don't know how many people that that applies to, but it certainly didn't yeah. apply, you know, it doesn't apply to people like me. Mm-hmm. And they say, can you not just do like a quick 50K friends and family around? Think, what planet are you from? Yeah. Um, so that's why it's maybe taken a bit longer. And that's why, you know, in terms of like growing team, taking risks, things like that, I haven't wanted to do those you know, it's just take a big loan and employ a load of people. I want to be, you know, I've been cautious and slow and steady about it. So difficult, but proud of it. And the other thing to say, the other thing on that about biggest challenge is that education, unfortunately, like a number of things, is stuck in a, is stuck in a previous century in many ways. I mean, curriculum for a start, but that's, that's for another conversation. But there are, there are hundreds of different English language exam boards across the world. And that's because education, certification, examination is big business. Um, so 
trying to break through and say, look, there's a different way of doing this. There are a lot of, um, a lot of businesses and a lot of English language leaders, I suppose, from an old world that won't like this idea mm-hmm. of really turning up with a master key, which is effectively what we do. It doesn't yeah. matter what exam board you study, what corporate logo is on top of the exam board specification. It makes no difference whatsoever. English language was English language 100 years ago and it will be in 100 years. Vocabulary changes, informality of language changes. That's it. A lot of people aren't going to like that. So trying to disrupt COVID in some ways is quite beneficial for the way in which education now and communication digitally is conducted because even people from a real old guard have seen the benefit of working in a completely different way, in a digital Mm -hmm. way. Yeah. So we can, we can use that to our advantage, but you know, bootstrapping and the, you know, dragging education into the um, 21st century would say the biggest challenges today. Yeah, great. And then final question is, obviously you've, you've been through it, you've been bootstrapping, what yeah. sort of advice would you give to someone who you know, is looking to start a new business themselves tomorrow? Okay. Um, to find advisors and peers who offer you criticism and advice in equal measure. Right. Um, during the development and sort of proof of concept and even you know in like investment stages, uh, critics always have louder voices than creators. That's just human nature. But take a take advice from people who have been there and done it themselves, because everyone will have an opinion on what you do and how you're doing it. But just prioritise time for the voices of those that have been on similar journeys. Um, you know, I've I've been really really lucky to meet with some really helpful people who believe in me, believe in what I do and genuinely want to help me to get there. So I just say, try and ask yourself very quickly during these conversations, is this one of those people? Mm -hmm. Is one of the people that wants to be part of the story and part of the success story in helping you to get there? Or is it just an idle pedestrian criticism that doesn't really benefit them or you? Because your time specifically as being a solo founder is is limited. Mm -hmm. Um, So just make sure that those if it's a criticism, it's a criticism that comes with advice in equal measure. That's that'd be my biggest piece of advice. Great. Well, look, I think we'll wrap it up there. Thanks for thanks for your time today. Thanks very much. Hope you enjoyed it. Yep, absolutely. Thank you. <laughs>